This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. The most difficult first step for any person as they leave the darkness of a cult and are blinded by the sunlight of new life in Christ is finding comfort in grace. After studying the scriptures without the filter of a man, it doesn't take very long before coming to the realization that the word grace has an entirely different meaning in the Bible than they were accustomed to in the past. To any new convert to Christ, This word grace is comforting. It is freedom. It is love. It is peace. It is joy and hope. It is the good gift that Christ gave us by his suffering and bleeding on the cross as he hung there crying, Father, forgive. But by nature, cult theology will rob you of God's greatest gift. That same grace that sets a sinner free brings chains of bondage to the cult member. That same freedom in Christ that a new Christian experiences as they read their Bibles for the very first time is a job and a chore for those who have been programmed to believe a different kind of grace. Ephesians 2, 8-9 through is my favorite passage of Scripture, having been brought through this experience. It should be the foundation to everyone's faith, and yet it has been covered with the graffiti of man's theology. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 8-9 through This word grace is translated from the Greek word charity, C-H-R-I-T-I. The very word that's similar to our own English word charity, C-H-A-R-I-T-Y. It is a gift. Because you are loved and not given to you by anything that you can possibly do by yourself. This gift won't be given to you because you followed the rules. It has already been given to you. And it won't be given to you because you stayed within the invisible boundaries created by man-made religion. It has already been given to you. Strong's Concordance describes this word as blessings, 
which afford joy and pleasure. It uses examples such as the love of a good master towards his servants and finding favor in the eyes of the giver. In other words, we have found favor in God's eyes, but not from anything that we do, simply because he loves us as a father loves his child. One author that I've read explains this word grace using the phrase unmerited favor. This is the summary of the entire definition of the translated word. Our favor in God's eyes is unmerited. We did not do anything to deserve it. We can never repay it, and it is only because He loved us enough to send His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. That's the only reason that we have this grace. To the new Christian, this is wonderful. This is the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ came to save them, and they did not do anything to deserve it. Why anyone would not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ is beyond me. It is a free gift. All you have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. But as converts to Christ from the chains of a cult, this isn't so easy. It is a free gift, but we had to earn this grace. We had to follow man-made rules in order to even deserve it. And if we broke those rules, we were taken out from under it. For some, even to question the rules or the theology was to be taken from grace. We want to serve Christ, and we want to walk in His perfect will. We do not want anything to do, we don't want to do anything that He does not want us to do. For this very reason, the very first mistake that every cult member will make as they struggle to find their new life in Christ is trying to determine which rules they should follow in order to deserve God's grace. Finding a church becomes difficult. I remember reading through the belief system of many different churches once I realized that I had been born and raised in a cult. None of them sounded like Christian churches to me. They did not have the same rules that I grew up with. I began accusing some groups of not having read their Bibles because they didn't know the rules for earning God's grace. That same pride that causes scorn towards other Christians will cling fiercely. Without even realizing it, you return to that same sin that made you decide to leave the cult in the first place. Remember the last half of that passage of Scripture from Ephesians not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Boasting is one of the many sins described in the New Testament. And this word boasting does not simply mean bragging through words spoken. We can also have boastful hearts. Boasting is a reflection of pride, which also is a sin described in the New Testament. The same Christians that love the Lord Jesus with all their hearts in other churches, have done no different than us. They are no less deserving of God's grace. They have done nothing less than we deserve. It's God's unmerited favor, because we did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Jesus gives a parable in Matthew 20 about laborers in a vineyard. The first workers agree to a day's 
work of pay, a denarius. They called it a day's wage. They began working, and the master of the house later found more workers later in the day. Though the, still, the work, first workers were still laboring, the new workers started long after, and they received the same wages. This re was repeated the third, the sixth, the ninth, and the eleventh hour. All these hours of the day, new workers coming in, receiving the same day's wage for their labor. Those that were first worked the hardest. They worked all day in the hot sun, working for a day's wage that they had agreed upon. But they were upset because those that worked half a day received the same day's wage. Jesus says that this parable describes the kingdom of heaven. Our labor does not earn us any more favor in God's sight. He chooses the work that he would have us do, not the work that man would have us do. He chooses us at the time and the place that he wants us to serve, not the time and the place that man would expect us to come. And the best part? We all receive the same reward. This should make us rejoice and sing constant praises to God. The children of Israel suffered through the law. They labored from the day that Moses broke those stone tablets to the day that Christ was rejected. They earned their salvation through the constant work of the law. But we've come into the kingdom at the eleventh hour. We did not labor like the Jews, and we, we receive our reward simply because the Master chose us. His love for us is unmerited favor, something we don't deserve, given to us with the reward of a new life in Christ. Anyone who listens to or reads this is probably thinking to themselves right now, What? Why would anyone not want to accept the grace that is given so freely? It's easy to be a child of the King. Why not just accept it? But it's not that simple. Cult worship does not always serve the same God that is described in the Bible. Sure, they serve a God that's called Jesus Christ. And they serve a God whose Father's name is Yahweh. But they're not one and the same. In fact, these gods are far from the same. Remember the history behind the covenants that brought the Mosaic Law. Remember how God made a covenant of ten simple commandments that were all bound in two simple rules. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And remember how the children of Israel broke the first rule and second rule immediately after making that first covenant between God and man through Moses. God's wrath was kindled. He was a loving father, but he was also an angry father. This was a time of punishment and a time of correction. The Mosaic Law given to the, show the children of Israel that they could never save themselves. The entire rest of the New Testament shows how a righteous man would rise and uphold the law. And then that same righteous man would fall, or those with him would quickly fall and break the law. Each time they broke the law, God's anger was kindled. This is the God that is served by the cult. Not God in his fullness but one single personality of God. They serve God of law, not the God of grace. They serve the God of wrath, not the God of unmerited favor. 
They served the God of the Old Testament specifically during the punishment, not the God of the New Testament after the penalty for that punishment was paid. Many cults subscribe to the oneness or modalistic theology, the idea that the God of punishment from the Old Testament is the same Jesus that died on the cross in payment for sins. It's common among many cults, from the Jehovah's Witness to the Mormons and more. This theology is designed to lift the cult leader into power. Sermons or writings will be presented that lead the people into believing that that same God of punishment is alive and well in the ministry of their leader. Some will even start believing that this leader is God himself. Others will label the ministry or the denomination as God and compare the two spiritually rather than physically. They will believe that the same God of wrath in the Old Testament became Jesus of the New. Then, that same God of wrath in the New Testament was made manifest in today's age through the ministry of this cult leader. But as in times of punishment of the Old Testament, they will tell you that if your works do not meet the standards of their theology, you will grieve the Holy Spirit. And you'll grieve Him into leaving you. That same God of wrath that seemingly turned His back on the children of Israel would turn His back on you. That's the reason that the Trinitarian belief is denied in so many cults. The Trinity is not some new idea that creates more gods. It is the same God of the Bible. It just isn't the God of wrath that they have been serving. The children of Israel were called children for a reason. They had a father. This father was Yahweh. He was a loving father as he displayed with Adam. He was a graceful father as he showed with Abraham and David. He was an intelligent father as we find with Solomon. He was and is the Heavenly Father who loves His children. That love brought punishment for disobeying. God does not want us to serve other gods. And when the children of Israel did, they were punished. But they weren't punished because God did not love them. They were punished so that we would one day realize that God's grace is sufficient. There's no reason to serve other gods. We serve the greatest God of them all. We serve the God who loves us. That son who died on the cross for us was not the same father who punished the children of Israel. That son stood before men as the father called him his own beloved son. That son begged the father to let this cup pass from him as the hour of the gift was coming. That same son cried out unto the father to forgive the Jews because they did not know they were crucifying the gift. That son promised to send us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us and never would leave us. He promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. That son is God. That father is God. That Holy Spirit is God. These three, the three that we read about in our Bibles, are one. They are inseparable. Yet we find example after example in Scripture describing one as a father who loves us as, as his children. One as a son who intercedes for us on behalf of the Father. And one who lives within us, the Holy Spirit that gives us strength. A Holy Spirit that will never leave us 
or, or forsake us. Finding comfort in grace means finding the truth in that very statement. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Finding comfort in grace is learning to take those first steps while the Father is reaching down holding our hand. The loving Father is reaching down His hand to His child, letting us hold on to His finger as our legs start to wobble. And as we learn to walk, He is standing there right with us. Christ is standing there, covering us with grace. The unmerited favor that He purchased on the cross is flowing through us as He intercedes on behalf of the Father. And that Holy Spirit is within us. It's calling out, begging us to take more steps. It's leading us to the truth. It's drawing us closer to God. You won't find comfort in grace until you suddenly realize that these three are one. After being misled by a cult leader whose motives were his own, that trust is very hard to establish. You won't trust that in the blood that was spilled on the cross. You won't trust that the cross is sufficient, and you'll want to take your salvation into your own hands. Until you find comfort and grace, you won't realize that the Holy Spirit is calling out from inside of you. You've already been led, and you realize this was not down a pathway that was pleasing to God. But when you realize that Jesus is God, and when you realize that the Holy Spirit is God, and you realize that the Father that showed his wrath to the children of Israel also had the ability to show the love, mercy, and unmerited favor, you will become more confident. Your next step becomes easier because that is God speaking inside of you. Your faith in salvation becomes greater because that is God standing there on your behalf, erasing every single sin that you committed. Your next step seems more solid. Because that is God who's reaching down to hold your hand. Finding comfort in grace is realizing what grace really is. It isn't some strange magical power that requires certain words spoken during baptism. It isn't some mythical angel sent down to spread his wings of healing. It isn't some kind of code of conduct that you must live your life by in order to achieve spiritual enlightenment. Grace is a gift, one that is given because the Father loves you. He knows that your next few steps may cause a tumbling, but He knows that He'll be right there to pick you up as you fall. And He already knows which direction you're going to fall because His Holy Spirit is the one that's leading you. Accept the gift. Find comfort in grace. Find peace and satisfaction in knowing that the Father loves you as His own child. 